This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. After opening fire on colleagues during a routine faculty meeting, many said that this biology professor must have just snapped. However, a closer look at her history would reveal several warning signs that went ignored. This is the Amy Bishop story. Morning, Megan. Morning. It's early. It is early, but (laughs) thank you for getting up and getting ready early today to record. I appreciate it. I know. I'm taking one for the team today. You are. You are. (laughs) Well, Megan, we are back at school, and this is the time of year that students and teachers are returning to the classroom, and today's case is one that takes place on a college campus. It's actually related to another project that we have been working on with our partners over at Abjack Entertainment. These are the people who bring you DNA, ID, and criminology. And a lot of others. Yes. We are pleased to announce that we are launching a new seasonal podcast called Campus Killings, which will premiere on September 17th. Each episode will cover a homicide that happened on a campus with tips on what you can do to make change and to be safe. We will be releasing a new episode every two weeks, so find us and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And since this episode was so close to the theme, we decided to also include it in that feed as a bonus. So Women in Crime listeners will be a little bit ahead of the game, but don't worry because episode one of Campus Killings is a completely new case that Megan covers. Who is it, Megan? Jean Cleary, whose murder was the impetus for major campus-wide changes across the United States. We love our cases that ignite change. Absolutely. Join us every two weeks starting September 17th for all new episodes of Campus Killings. So today's case is a bit of a preview, the Amy Bishop story. I know this case. I know that you know this case. Yep, I use it in my class, my Women in Crime class. But I promise you, you will learn something new because I thought I knew everything about this case, but no. I have no doubt about that. All right. Amy was born April 24th, 1965 to parents Judy and Sam. She was born in Iowa City. Amy's father, Sam, was a graduate student who was studying fine arts at the University of Iowa. Now, Judy, her mother, was originally from New Hampshire and Sam, her father, was also from the New England area as well. The two had met at the New England School of Art in Boston. In early 1968, the family moved to Braintree, Massachusetts, which is a nice community about 10 miles south of Boston. Now, I'm not positive, but I believe the move was prompted by Sam getting a teaching job in the art department at Northeastern University. Mm, Okay. Random fact about Braintree is that Presidents John Adams and John Quincy Adams were both born there. Oh, I love it. Fun fact. You know I love my fun fact. I know you do. Now, the family fit right in. Judy was very involved in the community. She was very likable. Sam excelled at work. Everything was going great for the family, and about a year later, when Amy was less than four years old, the family welcomed a baby boy named Seth. Now, Amy was a high achiever. She was an accomplished violinist, and she took a strong interest in the sciences. Now, reportedly, this was because she had severe allergies and suffered asthma in childhood, and she was determined to find a cure for her ailment. Wow. Yeah. So her and her brother, Seth, got along very well, and Amy would often dote on her younger brother. They were quite different, however, because Seth was outgoing and athletic. Amy, by all accounts, was shy and described more as a loner. But overall, you know, the bishops were a happy, well-adjusted family. 
Now, this was until there was an event that would cause a shift. On December 6, 1986, the family returned home to find that their home had been broken into. The house was ransacked. There were several significant items missing, such as Judy's wedding ring and two silver cups that commemorated the births of Seth and Amy. You know, like cups that would say like the baby's name and like yeah. date of birth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. As expected, you know, the family had a really hard time coping with this event. Judy even wrote letters to the local paper begging for the return of these items. It seems strange because there were a lot of valuables that were still in the house and just certain items that were missing. But, you know, either way, you know, it did go unsolved. Okay. The children slept with the parents afterwards. Everyone was just on edge. So much so that Sam went to a nearby town and purchased a 12-gauge shotgun vowing to protect his family. All right. Now, the weapon was kept unloaded in Sam's bedroom closet with a box of shells on a nearby dresser. And reportedly, both Amy and Judy were not happy with this purchase. They didn't feel comfortable with having a gun in the home. Right. A little bit over a year later, after this event, on December 6, 1986, 911 received a call from the Bishop home. This call was placed by Judy, and she was frantically reporting that her daughter, Amy, who was now 21, had shot her son, Seth, who is now 18. Right, I remember this. Being that the police station was just under a mile from the home, the police were there within minutes, and they were greeted by Judy at the front door, who had spots of blood on her clothes. Now, Judy told the police that there had been an accident, and she witnessed the whole thing. She told the officers, quote, Amy said to me, I have a shell in the gun, and I don't know how to unload it. I told Amy not to point the gun at anybody, but as Amy swung the weapon around to show it to her brother, the gun fired. The kitchen was small and Amy had been standing very close to her brother and essentially hit Seth point blank. So she put the shell she in. Did. I mean, correct. Yeah, that doesn't look good. I mean, I guess the question is, why was she putting? That's my point. Why, yeah. was she, why did she put a shell in the unloaded yeah. weapon that she yeah. didn't want to use? Yeah, it, it's unclear why she was messing around with the gun to begin with. OK, but another shot was fired, I think, in her bedroom, like hitting the wall. So she was clearly like playing around with a gun. So she hit him point blank. Did he die? I don't remember. Judy directed EMS workers to the kitchen where Seth was on the floor bleeding to death from a chest wound. Wow. Some say that Judy acted very strange because rather than comforting her son in his final moments, she sat there speaking with the EMTs. But we always say you cannot judge people's reaction to traumatic events. No. So where's Amy? Yeah. Amy, Amy was nowhere to be found on the property. She ran off. She had actually gone to a nearby auto shop. It was like an auto shop slash dealer and demanded that they give her a car. She still had the loaded gun or she still had the gun. And she was pointing it at these men and said that she had gotten in a fight with her husband and she needed a getaway vehicle. That seems like an attempted robbery to me. <laughs> pointing a gun, demanding a car. Is that not an attempted robbery? Right? Yeah. I mean, that's not OK. <laughs> it's, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So luckily, the men were able to get away from the situation, call the police. The police soon arrived and Amy pointed her firearm at the police and would not drop it when they demanded her to drop it. Luckily, another officer came from behind and was able to retrieve the gun. I've seen a series of felonies here, but yeah, okay. Yeah, so Amy, throughout the whole ordeal, by all eyewitnesses, she was described as catatonic and expressionless. Mm. Now, believe it or not, she was not immediately questioned. She had been, quote, released to the custody of her parents with further investigation to follow. Get out. Yes. That was the 80s, right? Mid-80s. I wonder if that had anything to do with it. That's very strange to me. Okay. Yeah. So it was ultimately concluded by both investigators and by the DA that Seth's death was the result of, quote, the accidental discharge of a firearm. And I've never heard anything about the fact that she held up these men with a gun or wouldn't drop the gun. when. So the no punishment for her. 
essentially. No punishment, and life went on for the bishops. Wow. I mean, of course, Amy seemed different. Some say she felt guilty. However, she always maintained that it was a horrible accident. Okay. And she never received any counseling. And the family stayed in the home in which their son bled out on the kitchen floor. I, I don't think I could do that. So I know you, your wheels are turning already. Like, I know. You see me on my eyes. I'm like, hmm. And believe it or not, we haven't even gotten to today's story. I know. This is just the background. I know. Okay, so what happened? Amy moves on. She excels in school. She attended Northeastern. And she put all her energy into her studies. And she did very well. While she was in school, she met Jim Anderson. Now, he was a fellow student at Northeastern. And they met in a campus group devoted to Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, gosh, I remember Do you remember game. Dungeons and Dragons? I do. I was never into it, but Yeah, I so it was popular during the late 70s and the early 80s. And actually, it kind of reemerged during COVID. Did you know this? No. With, like, people playing on Zoom and, you know, Skype and other uh, platforms. That makes sense to But me. for people who don't know, it's a tabletop game, like, not a video game. And it's kind of a role-playing game where everyone works together to create an imaginary adventure. Right. The two bonded over that. They dated for a few years and got married in 1989. And just one year prior, she had began her graduate studies working towards a PhD in genetics at Harvard. That's an impressive resume. She's clearly smart. While in school, she gave birth to her first daughter in 1991, and two more daughters would soon follow. In 1993, Amy received her PhD from Harvard and had begun her postdoctoral work at the Harvard School of Public Health. Okay. In 2001, Amy had her youngest and final child, a son they named Seth. Oh. Yeah, okay. so they named their son after her deceased brother. Right. You want to hear something crazy? He was born on what would have been her brother's 33rd birthday. Really? So they have the same birthday. Wow. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Amy struggled to keep up with a demanding job and raise her children. And while Jim was a supportive husband, he did not contribute financially, which left the burden all to Amy. What did she do? What did she do? Was she still in her postdoc then? She was still in her postdoc. Okay. Yep. So apparently, according to Amy, Jim was, quote, too smart to work. So Jim stayed home with the kids and worked on some, you know, inventions and was working to get patents on some things. But he was providing the child care. Yep. Yeah. Okay. In 2003, Amy got a job offer at the University of Alabama, Huntsville, as a tenure track neurobiology professor. As a result, the family relocated from Massachusetts to Alabama, and things were looking good because they would finally have financial stability. Mm -hmm. Quite a change, though. Yes. In Alabama, Amy and Jim spent a lot of time working on a patent for an automated cell incubator. This is a bit problematic, though, because Amy was pursuing patents rather than writing journal articles, making her publication record scarce. Uh, well, we know how important that is in academia. For those of you who don't know, University of Alabama Huntsville is an R1, which is a research one school, which means that there's a very high research activity. In these R1 schools, most resources go to science and research, mm -hmm. meaning that they expect their faculty to continually publish. And in order to get tenure, you have to have a strong publication record. Right. Now, she was allegedly given repeated warnings that failing to publish could jeopardize her prospects for tenure. But it seems as if she just kind of ignored that. Ugh. Like, I, I remember this, mm -hmm. the backdrop to yeah. this event. And in addition to her subpar publication record, many students would complain over the years and would ask to be transferred from her classes. So we're talking about, you know, she doesn't have a publication record and she also has complaints from students. Now, in the spring of 2009, to no one but Amy's surprise, she was denied tenure. Now, she was shocked and angered and she actually appealed many times, even hiring a lawyer at one point. Now, what is not 
receiving tenure actually mean? So when you get tenure in teaching, it essentially means job security for as long as you would like, provided that, you know, you don't commit a felony or do something, you know, it's essentially guaranteeing that you will stay at that university and remain there for the remainder of your career if you choose. Which is not always the best policy because some people get lazy when they get tenure. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, I don't know that I, I agree uh, that tenure is the best policy. I always think about this like in other jobs in other fields, you yeah. don't have job security for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It's meritorious. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's definitely downsides to tenure. Yeah. And you and I both know that there are people that once they get tenure, they just stop doing things. Slack a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the original purpose of tenure was to protect academics, right, from like, uh, you know, kind of a cancel culture, mm-hmm. um, being able to speak out you know, freely without repercussion yeah. or losing their jobs. So it's one of those things where I all like, you know, a lot of well-intended policies just have some, you know, mm-hmm. unintended consequences. Yep. So I don't know that people realize, but basically, if you are denied tenure, you have a terminal year, which is really a year to wrap things up and look for a new job. Yeah. And by the time that you've spent at that university, other employers will pretty much be able to, you know, figure out that you were denied tenure because, you know, there's a certain amount of times, usually like five or six or seven years. And if you're leaving university after that time, it's then obvious that you've been Mm -hmm. denied tenure, which I mean, that doesn't mean that you can't get a job. It's still a good one, but uh, it might not help with your job prospects. And it's embarrassing. It is. It's hard. It's very hard. I mean, we've both been through the process and the idea of working so hard. And I'm not saying she, because she, I'm sure she worked hard in her own right, whether she was working on the right things for right. what she needed for tenure, but to work hard and then be denied and almost have to start over in your careers. The tenure process is grueling. Even if you have, like you and I both had, we knew we had the mm-hmm. requirements met, but just getting it all together and submitting all the information, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As I mentioned, Amy was angry. She was shocked. On several occasions, she demanded to speak with the president and saying she wouldn't leave until she spoke to the president. There was like a police escort situation at one point. Wow. So she was clearly not taking the news well. No. Nobody could have predicted just how well she was not taking the news, however. Friday, February 12, 2010, began like any other day for Amy. She taught her usual classes that day. She taught a class on anatomy and then a class on neuroscience. Around 3 p.m., she joined her colleagues for a department meeting in the science department where there were 12 other people in attendance. Now, these were all faculty and staff from that department. We know these meetings very well. Oh, we sure do. Yeah. So they're usually, you know, just to talk about what's going on, usually plan for the next semester. And, you know, it's nice because you get to see your colleagues. But, you know, like any other meeting, people are you know not thrilled. So that day at that meeting, Amy's demeanor was a little bit different than it had been in prior meetings. She was normally very outspoken Actually, some would say argumentative, but on this occasion, she was very quiet and reserved. Some attendees of the meeting speculated that she probably just didn't have much to add, given that this would be her last semester at the university. And a lot of this conversation was planning for the next semester. Oh, that must have. I'm shocked that they even made her go. I I was thinking the same thing, how uncomfortable. Yeah. So for close to an hour, Amy sat quiet until just as the meeting was concluding, she stood up, pulled a nine millimeter gun out of her purse, a Ruger semi-automatic, and shot her department chair in the head. Wow. Yeah. And she fired again, aiming at the department assistant. Next, she turned and shot a colleague who was a cell biologist. Then she turned the gun on another colleague and shot her. So this would be the fourth person to be shot. 
Now, at one point during the chaos, Amy's colleague and friend, Deborah, dived under the conference table and essentially was like putting her arms around Amy's legs, begging her to stop, saying, Amy, please don't do this. Think of my family. And Amy looked down and pulled the trigger. Wow. Luckily for this woman, however, the gun had jammed. And Amy tried several more times to shoot her and the gun continued to jam. Now, everyone in the room was in shock and started to panic. Of course, some people screamed and ducked and others froze. Of course. Now, Amy was blocking the only door out of the room. But Deborah, the friend who was just begging for her life, had managed to get past her. And as Deborah tried to get past her, Amy's still trying to fumble with the gun because it was jammed. So Deborah runs into the hallway and Amy followed her continuously clicking the trigger. But luckily, the gun was still jammed. Wow. Now, at this point, Deborah somehow managed to get back into the conference room. And with the help of others who were not too badly wounded, they barricaded the door and Amy was unable to get back in. Wow. This is when reality set in and it was realized that Amy had shot six people, three of them fatally. Oh, my God. Yeah. And this whole episode lasted less than a minute. Wow, okay. Yeah, so at this point, you know, Amy probably felt like her job was done. She couldn't get back in the room. So, you know, instead of trying to fight to get back into the room, she went into a restroom where she cleaned herself up, rinsed off the gun, took off her blood-stained blazer, stuffed the gun into her blazer, and then threw it in the trash can. Where did she go? Well, as if nothing happened, she entered a nearby science lab and asked the student if she could borrow their cell phone, and she called her husband, Jim. What did she say? So Jim usually had picked her up from class. I don't know if they shared a car or if Amy didn't drive, but normally Amy would call Jim and say, you know, come pick me up. So on this occasion, she called Jim and told her husband, quote, I'm done. And he headed to get her, not having any idea what had happened. Of course not. So Amy left the building through like one of those loading docks in the back of a building. And that's where she was met by a sheriff's deputy who immediately apprehended her. Okay. Now, upon arrest, Amy exclaimed, quote, it didn't happen. There's no way. When asked about the death of her colleague, she said, quote, there's no way they are still alive. So she's in denial right now. Either in denial or faking being in denial. Yeah. Yeah. So Amy was held, not surprisingly, without bail, and she was charged with one count of capital murder. Now, capital murder means that it's a death eligible crime. In Alabama, one of the aggravating factors for capital murder is the murder of two or more individuals. Got it. And in Alabama, of course, this is the most serious offense, which is considered a class A felony, which carries 10 years to life and, again, possible death penalty. Okay. She was also charged with three counts of attempted murder. Now, police were wondering if Jim knew about what was going on. So, of course, they interviewed him and they quickly determined that, you know, he really didn't know what was going on. There was absolutely no evidence that he knew anything. I wouldn't think yeah. so. It was his gun, though, and he did go to a shooting range with Amy a few weeks prior, but I don't, I don't think that, I don't means, think that anything. means anything. Yeah. The next morning, the sheriff's department received an interesting phone call. It was the chief of police from Braintree, Massachusetts, saying, quote, the woman you have in custody, I thought you'd want to know, she shot and killed her brother back in 1986. Right. I, I think once the police in Massachusetts found out about this, they started putting things together like, oh, this isn't the first time this woman was violent. Yeah. Two days later, Amy attempted to take her own life, but she was given medical attention and she had survived. And this was while she was in jail. On September 24th, 2012, Amy pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, interestingly, this was after she had withdrawn an earlier plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. I thought she was going to go for the insanity plea. So she did, but then they withdrew it. Have you heard about this process of changing a plea? Like any idea why they may have withdrawn the early plea and have just decided to plead guilty? They took the death penalty off the table. They did. But remember, if somebody is found 
uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, then they're often confined to a mental health facility rather than a prison. Yeah, but if they didn't buy it, if the jury doesn't buy it, then that that doesn't prevail. But maybe she didn't want to go to a mental health facility. Well, and also people believe that the insanity defense is used often and often successful for what we see in popular media. However, it's only used 1% of the time and it's only successful in about a quarter of the cases. So it's not easy to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. So what's the reason she changed her plea? That is unknown, but it seems to me that they didn't have the clear and convincing evidence to establish the insanity defense. Okay. Amy filed an appeal on February 11th, 2013 on a few grounds. Now one being- Hold on. She's appealing, but she's pled guilty. Yeah. Okay. I'm just thinking, you know, when people are appealing, it's usually because they've have issues during trial. Well, listen to what she was appealing on. Okay, all right. And then I'll tell you why she didn't win, but you're on the right track. So one of the grounds was that she was not informed of the rights that she would be waiving by pleading guilty. Oh, I see, okay. And she also says she was not correctly informed of the minimum range of punishment and that the circuit court had failed to explain that she could withdraw her plea. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, a few months later, in April of 2013, the Court of Criminal Appeals of Alabama rejected the appeal, stating that Amy failed to challenge the validity of her guilty plea in the circuit court. Okay. Through Amy's lawyer, there was a statement that she had wanted to be tried for her brother's death. Because remember, that's still on the table as well, because she said she wanted to vindicate herself because she always maintained her innocence, saying that it was an accident. And she believed if the case did go to trial that she'd be able to prove her innocence. Okay. However, the police in Massachusetts did decline to seek her extradition for her brother's death. All right. Because there's no point, I don't think. It seems like she's already life without parole. I I wouldn't think so either. But if an appeal does prevail at some point, you know, I would assume that's the reason why, again, when someone's found guilty, that you go for other convictions. Yeah, but maybe they felt like this was a slam dunk. I don't know. Okay. Who knows? Or maybe they didn't have the evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's a, it sounds like they did. Yeah. It, it sounds like it sounds like although it may have been a situation that might not seem accidental, I don't see the evidence that would have held up in court. Yeah, I agree. Amy is currently serving her time at an Alabama state women's prison, which is a max security and houses the state's death row population. She's 57 years old and she holds the title of the first academic in U.S. history to be accused of gunning down fellow professors. Yeah, I think I knew that. I'm not sure that there's been any since. I know that there have been threats, but I have not come across any cases since in which a professor harms fellow I don't know of any offhand. I'm not exactly sure how Amy's spending her time in prison, but there was a report of her being assaulted a few years back. Not sure what the circumstances were. By an inmate or? By an inmate. Okay. Yeah. So what's going on with Jim and the children? According to an interview with Jim about two years ago, He says that he is still married to Amy, but this is purely for financial reasons. Now, the children are all adults, and he says that they don't visit often. What do you mean financial reasons? Just saying it's cheaper to stay married than get divorced. I mean... I I don't understand. That was just what he was quoted saying. Okay, fine. So, remember, she had four children. Yes. Unfortunately, on April 19th, 2021, her young son, Seth, died. Oh, no. Of what? Yeah, he died from a gunshot wound. It's unclear the circumstances around this, but the media was quick to point out the irony. Yeah. Because Amy had killed her brother, Seth, by firearm, and then her son, Seth, who shares the same birthday with her brother. What a tragic irony. It's very tragic. He had died from a gunshot wound, and it seems as though a friend or an acquaintance had shot him, and it seems accidental. Like, they were charged with reckless 
manslaughter. Very cruel twist. It's eerily fate. similar, right? Yeah. Oh, that's very sad. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about some, you know, in hindsight, right? So we can always look back and say, you know, were there warning signs? Were there red flags? Other than the death of her brother, there were actually some other strange incidents or what some might call red flags. I think I remember one of these, but go ahead. Yeah. So in 1993, Amy's postdoctoral advisor at Harvard, she apparently had a dispute with him. Now, it's unclear what the dispute was about, but he did receive a suspicious package in the mail one day, not long after their dispute. He had opened it carefully because the Unabomber was active around the time that he received this. Right. And he saw that there was a trigger mechanism attached to a pair of pipe bombs. So he received a pipe bomb in the mail? He received a pipe bomb in the mail. Now, Amy and her husband were questioned by ATF because through investigation, I guess they asked this gentleman, do you know of anyone that would want to harm you? And I guess Mm -hmm. he gave their name. Law enforcement interviews at the time revealed that Amy and Jim had spoken to friends about how one might build a pipe bomb, but they were never charged and the case remains unsolved. I don't like that coincidence. Yeah, so who, who knows? We, we don't have the right. evidence, but it's... I don't like it, though. Yeah. Then there was an incident. I'm sure you've heard of this one, the IHOP incident. Yes, this and, is the one yeah. I know about. Okay. In 2002, the Bishop family went to IHOP and they had requested a booster seat for their youngest son, Seth. So a waitress had told them, you know, I'm sorry, but we don't have any. We had just given away the last one to this other child. Amy got very angry and yells, you know, we were here first. Yep. That should be my booster seat. You would think it would end there. But she then approached the woman whose child had the booster seat and screamed, quote, I am Dr. Amy Bishop. A manager had asked her to leave the restaurant and she did comply. However, she did walk back in, punching the woman in the head. Yep. I remember that's the one. And Amy was arrested, but the charges against her were dropped, and this never appeared on her permanent record. Now, we're going to get to theories in a minute, but is there such a clear theory here? Yeah, differential reinforcement. Yes, because she keeps having bad behavior that goes unpunished. Yeah, this is clear differential reinforcement. It's like that. There's so many theories that we can talk about, but this is clearly differential reinforcement. Right. We see time and time again over the course of her life, bad behavior going unpunished. Yes. All right. I have a pretty dense theory discussion today. So before we get into it, let's just quickly say, did the system get it right? Yes. But eventually, like, obviously, they got it right when, you know, she was apprehended and punished and life in prison. But there were times where this could have been prevented. Yes. Had she been punished. So it's a yes and no for me. I mean, we would also come to find out that she had faked her CV, her resume. So they didn't do a proper background check on Amy when they hired her. Really? Yeah. I'm not saying it's anyone's fault that this happened, but... No, no, but what did she fake? Like her publications or, or other things that she did? Some yeah, just, qualifications? Yep, exactly. Wow, exactly. okay. All right, so I want to talk about the media coverage of Amy's case because this really reveals attention because I want to talk a little bit about the media coverage of this case and, okay. what, and what people were saying. There were many theories. On the one hand, people said she is, quote, a lunatic. This suggestion actually came from her own attorney, who claimed that she was, quote, wacko. Wow. But later apologized. The defense attorneys did seek out funds to demonstrate that she had suffered from psychotic episodes and brain damage, saying at one point that she was schizophrenic. She had attempted to die by suicide while she was in jail, and she did not express remorse. Whether or not she suffered from a diagnosable mental illness is actually unclear somehow. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay. The other hypothesis, which I think is absolutely ridiculous, is the, quote, tenure made her do it hypothesis. Okay. Now, this hypothesis is that the grueling years-long process of trying to 
win tenure and the despair that came along with being denied tenure made her snap. I think this is too simplistic. It's too simplistic, but it might have been like the straw that broke the camel's back. Also, though, you know, she learned that she wouldn't get tenure in March of 2009, which was almost a year prior to the murders. So I don't know if it was just stewing that long, but it's not it's not like she snapped when she found out. Right yeah, away. it wasn't like a snap in the moment. I see what you're saying. It is not public knowledge who votes for and against a promotion to tenure. However, Amy somehow found out it was reported. OK, yeah, you can see. I mean, I've sat on these committees before, too. So you can see how many people vote yay or nay. But yeah, they don't identify mm -hmm. those people specifically. So although Amy was never formally diagnosed, I see clear signs of a few personality disorders. I see him too. Now, what do you think about borderline personality disorder? Absolutely. I mean, we see the fear of being rejected. Yep. Very clearly. Lack of impulse control. Yep. Mood swings. And she almost like toggled between two extremes. It seemed from reports of people that knew her, she went from being very angry to idolizing people. And it was always extreme on how she felt about people. Yeah, no, I see borderline for sure. That's what I would have said. Over the years, we see evidence that the slightest annoyances could set off a disproportionate violent reaction mm -hmm. with Amy. Right, right. Many people that were interviewed would say that she would get angry very, very quickly. You know, we also see a lack of remorse. We see a bit of a disconnection from real life and relationships. Yeah. What other personality disorder do you see, Megan? Based on what you were saying about I'm um, Dr. Amy Bishop and uh, I would say m narcissistic personality yeah. disorder. Yeah. And I agree with you that I think the IHOP situation is evidence of that. And she also rejected criticism. Right. And she fudged her resume. Right. And she made herself seem a little bit more important than she actually was. She talked about this patent that it was going to change the right. world. Right. So I think although Amy exhibited many of the hallmark characteristics of different personality disorders, I think it's important that we have to acknowledge that her life experiences likely contributed to her instability and subsequently what had happened. I mean, whether or not her brother's death was accidental, that's still very traumatic and she'd never received any counseling or anything sure. from that. Yeah, I agree. So let's just assume it was accidental. Could you imagine living with that kind of guilt? No. And if it wasn't accidental, then she clearly has been suffering some mental illness for many years undiagnosed. If it wasn't accidental, you're saying it had to be mental illness that doesn't caused her to do to, it? It doesn't have to be, but I would think that it just doesn't seem like something a mentally healthy person would do. Shoot your brother that you have no issue with? No, I, I, I agree, but it doesn't necessarily. No, it doesn't mean. If not, therefore, but I, I tend to think the brother's. The shooting was an accident. Actually, no, I, I'm not sure. I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I'm just uh, yeah. it's it's a whopper. And even if it was an accident, it's not OK that she then held up people with a gun demanding a car. Well, so I don't know about the brother, but it was, that's my that was my surprise after. I'm like, OK, yeah. now we have attempted robbery, brandishing a weapon, resisting arrest. And then she punches a woman in the head. I mean, you have a lot of crimes that she's committed for yeah. which she has never been punished. Yep. So you think you're definitely with me with differential reinforcement being probably primary I think indicator so. here. Yeah, no, I, I think so. And um, maybe also, I think low self-control. Yes. Uh, so self-control is a general theory of crime by Hershey and Godfredson, but they basically stated that people with low self-control <laughs> are more likely to commit crimes. Yep. And, you know, they describe features of low self-control, which is like, you know, a lack of patience, mm -hmm. quick tempered use of like physical acts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they 
they blame that. That's the controversy yeah. of theirs, not that it's low self-control. Mm-hmm. The controversy with that theory is that they attribute that to usually parental rearing and that being problematic. I'm not sure if that's the case or not yeah. here, however, but it seems to me that she had low self-control yeah. and then her behavior is just reinforced when she does not receive any punishment. Yeah. Do you see any techniques of neutralization here? Depends on what she would have to say. I'm seeing denial of victim because that woman took her booster seat, so she deserves to be hit. I see that with the IHOP. I don't know what she said about what she did if she's denying the victims in the shootings. But I, the way I would interpret this is that she is angry that her colleagues denied her for tenure. So that's why it's okay that she's getting back. I think you're probably right. I'd love to know like what she actually yeah. had to say about it afterwards. Well, like, she did not. You know, she acted as if she didn't know. Remember, people said she was catatonic after the first event. So right. okay. who knows how much of this is feigned versus real? Very good point. Yeah. Before we end, Megan, we can't ignore the fact that she certainly does not fit the profile of the typical mass shooter. No, Amy Bishop does not fit the profile. Typically, mass shooters are males. You know, they're almost never females. And they are usually younger males, uh, like in a range of, you know, 18 to late 20s, early 30s. There's usually a history of mental illness that's been diagnosed and some type of medication that's Mm -hmm. been taken. So even if she suffered from mental illness, she was never diagnosed and she did not take any medications. There's usually a history of either feeling bullied or ostracized, which she does feel. Um... There is usually in most of these mass shootings, one of the common threads as well that people don't realize is that most of the mass shooters told someone that they were going to do it before they did, Mm -hmm. uh, making them even more preventable. In this case, I don't think that was true, even though we don't know for sure if she told her husband or anyone else. But in almost every regard, Amy Bishop is a very, very rare mass shooters are also even though it has become more common, but it's still not a common event. But in any event, what I will say is that she doesn't fit the profile, fit the mold at all. No, definitely not. I did know you were right, Amy. So I knew some things about the case, but you definitely gave me some information and some insight that I did not know. She was a rare type of offender. And that's why this case interests me, because I like cases in which someone doesn't fit the mold. Also, I mean, this was interesting for me because it involves the whole you know process that we've been through and... So, yes. you know, academically, I was interested as well. Yes, so thank absolutely. you, Amy. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's story. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include The New Yorker, The Los Angeles Times, The New York Times, Huffington Post, Boston Globe, CBS, PatriotLedger.com, and The Chronicle of Higher Education.